In our search for life, particularly here in the solar system, we think we'll find microbial life first. But beyond that, intelligent life, well out into the galaxy, what are we gonna find? What would it look like? They may be so different from us that they're unrecognizable. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Susan Schneider, and she is the NASA Bloomberg Chair at the Library of Congress and the William Dietrich Chair, Distinguished Professor at Florida Atlantic University. So today we're gonna to talk about looking for life beyond Earth and what it might be like. Welcome, Susan, to Gravity Assist. Hi, Jim, it's nice to meet you and be on your show. Well, you know, the NASA Astrobiology Chair at the Library of Congress is really a neat position. What are you working on? Oh, so many things. Um, I'm writing a book on the future of intelligence right now, and I'm asking the question, what sort of system will have the greatest capacity to be intelligent, the most intelligent system? So I'm kind of worried, just looking here on Earth, about whether humans could keep up with AI. So Susan, what is artificial intelligence? So AI is all around us. It's there when you're doing a Google search. It's there when you're talking to Siri um, and it's getting smarter all the time. So you might think AI is like a robot, but that's only one type of artificial intelligence. Um, I like to think of AI as any sort of intelligent algorithm. So what do you think artificial intelligence has to do in the search for life? Well, we might use our AIs to make predictions, for example. So we might find information about exoplanets from you know, our computers. Um, but what I focus on is a little different. I actually focus on the possibility that life forms out there, should there be any, that survive their technological maturity may actually develop their own artificial intelligences. And I argue in a recent book um, called Artificial You that the greatest sorts of intelligences, whether they be on in Earth's future or out somewhere on other planets, would be artificial intelligences. I actually think that we could augment the brain to become far more intelligent than we are right now. And I also think that artificial intelligence could eventually outthink us. Look at the speed of processing that has gone forth. I mean, you know, over the last decade, we've seen immense improvements in computational speed. And then just think about the possibility that you could have, in principle, a general intelligence that is instantiated in something the size of a planet. That is to say, you could have a computronium the size of a planet that has access to the entire internet. I think that that, in principle, could um, you know just blow us away. Well, you know, NASA's always you know looking forward to push that uh, envelope of uh, more intelligence in our spacecraft. You know, when I think about uh, the '60s, we had some really you know 
uh, uh, tough times getting our circuitries to work and, and run instruments. And then as we got in the 70s, we had some initial computers. But each and every generation of computers, we're updating our systems. Uh, we would love to be able to have complete artificial intelligence in our rovers on Mars to avoid things, get to places, drill this place, you know. And so moving in that direction is a natural thing for NASA to do. Uh, and, uh, and should we be considering doing that here on Earth, too, in, in terms of being able to have these machines access the Internet, get access to information, allow us huge amounts of resources that can help us in our life? Well, when you were saying that uh, about what NASA would like, I was thinking, well, ha haven't you all seen 2001? <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, hell was iconic. And here on Earth, there's something called the control problem, right? Mm -hmm. So people like Bill Gates, um, Elon Musk, Nick Bostrom, I mean, the list is really, really long. The late Stephen Hawking. We're all very, very worried about how to control artificial intelligence that reaches a sort of human level and then surpasses us, becoming what they call super intelligent which is by definition a hypothetical form of intelligence which outthinks humans in every dimension, social reasoning, mathematical skills, and more. And so until we get a handle on the control problem, I think mm -hmm. we have to bear in mind that, you know, if we use too, too general of AIs, too sophisticated AIs, we have to make sure we do so safely, whether it be here on Earth or in outer space. And of course, in outer space, you also have that awful problem of um, when something breaks. <laughs> well, you know, artificial intelligence requires data, and sometimes that data is conflicting. Uh, how do you think artificial intelligence is going to deal with conflicting sets of information to make a decision? It, it, are there decision rules that it then makes or is there, you know, uh, I took the path least traveled by or, you know, uh, we do it all the time. But what was a, what's a machine going to do? Very good question. I mean, there are so many different kinds of AI systems even today. So some like these deep learning systems are very data driven. And so, you know, you increase the data set and then a human corrects, you know, um, errors in the machines, algorithms. Um, and, you know, the idea there is that over a large amount of training sets, then you finally get a system that sort of gets the information right. But there are all kinds of other AI techniques. And, you know, one technique which comes to mind is the possibility of neuromorphic computing. That is um, artificial intelligence that is based on actual discoveries in cognitive science about how different parts of the brain compute. So that goes back to the idea that the brain itself is, in a sense, a computational engine. So for example, there are different parts of the brain right now, even today, that are characterized by a proprietary algorithm. Um, so for example, the hippocampus that you know, is responsible for encoding new memory. I mean, there are certain areas of the brain, like area CA1, which we've already identified the algorithm that it computes. So, you know, the idea then is if an AI is deficient in its reasoning, let's see how humans do it. Um, and I don't, and I take for granted the idea that, 
the first artificial general intelligences that rival our own intelligence will be like us. They may not because they could be a hodgepodge. I mean, you could take, you know, algorithmic encoding in the human case for the hippocampus, but do something very different than what humans do for other parts of the brain. Who knows what kind of intelligences will be out there, but I do think that over time they will outpace us. What do you think life beyond Earth would be, intelligent life? What should we expect? If we're moving into an AI realm, uh, do we expect them to do that too? I think so. And I call it the post-biological approach in astrobiology. Um, we all understand that if and when NASA finds life, it will probably be microbial. But what I am saying is that if we're getting to the point, we're flipping on our own computers, mm -hmm. um, you know, and this is still pretty early in our own technological evolution, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think, it seemed like just yesterday when we um, had the television or the automobile or the airplane, and now look where we are. So it may be only a, a you know, blink of an eye in cosmic time, really, before we start enhancing our own intelligence yeah. and becoming partly, if not fully, synthetic ourselves. It could be that the most intelligent civilizations out there are, in fact, post-biological. So they grew out of originally biological civilizations like ourselves, and they're vastly smarter than us. Um, in fact, they may be so different from us that they're unrecognizable. Then why haven't we been contacted yet? Well, Where are they? As Fermi used to say, you know, uh, uh, to his colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where are they? I mean, how can one not ask that question and be interested? <laughs> Everybody's interested. Well, you know, I liked Seth Shostak's answer. It was like, well, do we really get interested in our goldfish? I mean, the intellectual <laughs> gap between us and a civilization on the order of 50,000 years older than us, and that is, you know, now no longer biological even, is going to be huge. So why would they find us interesting? And, you know, I also say, well, being a Trekkie, you know, like I imagine lots of your listeners are, I mean, they may have a prime directive against bothering such low level species. And who knows, maybe they're waiting for us to evolve into something else. Well, the only thing I could say uh, uh, relative to that fishbowl is um, they would be interested in the fishbowl if they had a lack of water. You know, H.G. Wells thought of that first. Well, uh, let's uh, tease on that uh, science fiction portion of it. When you had yeah. mentioned uh, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, 2001, uh, I, I have reread the book and I've watched the movie uh, at its anniversary, in you know, a 50-year anniversary, and I've come to the conclusion that in reality, Hal didn't malfunction. Hal's objective was to find life. And, and the humans that were on board, their objective was to find life. But the difference is they were looking for life like them. Hal was looking for artificial life. And once he communicated and found it, he did not need the bags of water anymore. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> That's and, awesome. You know, because it's just to me unfathomable that that Hal Hal malfunctioned exactly at the wrong time. He was oh. he was executing his program. 
that finding oh. life with his top objective and everything else was secondary and, and therefore, you know, executed that. Well, what, what, what's your favorite science fiction work and why? Oh, tough one. Oh, so, I mean, I definitely like Contact. Um, I also, I have to tell you, I've really liked the film Interstellar. So I am a big fan of film. Maybe it's because I don't really have time to read science fiction very much anymore. Um, but Interstellar, you know, which Kip Thorne, the physicist, helped with, I mean, that was terrific. As the, Even the soundtrack was great, right? But in terms of reading, I love classic works of science fiction, Arthur C. Clarke, Isaac Asimov. Um, I'm also a fan of Greg Egan's short stories because he writes about brain chips and things like that. Well, do you think science fiction is important for us, you know, in shaping our thinking about our future in space? I really do. Um, it's funny because I notice I'm very interdisciplinary. So I move from one field to the next, from neuroethics to AI to astrobiology, um, philosophy of mind. And the lingua franca seems to be science fiction. And I notice that that's what gets so many of us conceptualizing the future. And I was going to say for better or worse, but I really think it's clearly for the better. Uh, I mean, you know, the range of science fiction, I mean, there's cyberpunk, uh, there's traditional like civilization and empire type of science fiction. I mean, there's just so much there. Well, you know, we are looking, you know, NASA is uh, looking for life in our solar system. As you say, it's probably going to be microbial. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, probably under the surface in particular, whether it's under an ice shell or it's under um, the crust of Mars. But uh, those are those are really prime candidates to be uh, to be looking for. But um, in, in reality, do you think society is ready for the announcement that we have found life beyond Earth? I think society's so distracted right now that anything can happen. Um, but I think it's ready and I think it's coming uh, in the microbial case. And it would be sad if it flew under the radar right now yeah. with all that's going on in the world. It would be really sad because it's so significant. And yeah. it used to bother me so much when I was talking to reporters about you know, my project for NASA on post-biological intelligence, because I always said to them, you know what's really interesting, even more interesting than this, is the search for microbial life. I mean, mm -hmm. that search is amazing, and it's going to teach us so much. I mean, you know, there's the possibility that life is related. There are deep philosophical questions about the origin of life, well, Susan, you know, I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was that event, that person, place, or thing that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. So, Susan, what was your gravity assist? Boy, that's a good question. Well, I got into astrobiology late in the game, you know, so I'll tell that story. Um, so... I was just called up by Stephen Dick and asked to speak at the Library of Congress. He said, what it's like to be an extraterrestrial. And 
I couldn't believe I got that kind of invitation. And of course, you can't really answer the question, what is it like to be an extraterrestrial? Because we don't even know if they exist. But of course, that led me on my little path in astrobiology to arguing that the smartest mm. aliens will be post-biological. I argue that AI may not be conscious. So it may be like nothing to be mm. an extraterrestrial AI. Well, Susan, thanks so much for joining me and discussing these fascinating topics. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk to you. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.